Chapter Six, Part One of the Riddle of the Universe. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read for you by Chiquito Crasto. The Riddle of the Universe by Ernst Haeckel, translated by Joseph McCabe. The Nature of the Soul. The phenomena which are comprised under the title of the life of the soul or the psychic activity are on the one hand the most important and interesting, on the other the most intricate and problematical of all the phenomena we are acquainted with. As the knowledge of nature, the object of the present philosophic study, is itself a part of the life of the soul, and as anthropology and even cosmology presuppose a correct knowledge of the psyche we may regard psychology the scientific study of the soul both as the foundation and the postulate of all other sciences from another point of view it is itself a part of philosophy or physiology or anthropology the great difficulty of establishing it on a naturalistic basis arises from the fact that psychology in turn presupposes a correct acquaintance with the human organism especially the brain the chief organ of psychic activity the great majority of psychologists have little or no acquaintance with these anatomical foundations of the soul and thus it happens that in no other science do we find such contradictions and untenable notions as to its proper meaning and its essential object as are current in psychology this confusion has become more and more palpable during the last thirty years in proportion as the immense progress of anatomy and physiology has increased our knowledge of the structure and the functions of the chief psychic organ what we call the soul is in my opinion a natural phenomenon i therefore consider psychology to be a branch of natural science a section of physiology Consequently, I must emphatically assert from the commencement that we have no different methods of research for that science than for any of the others. We have in the first place observation and experiment, in the second place the theory of evolution, and in the third place metaphysical speculation, which seek to penetrate as far as possible into the cryptic nature of the phenomena by inductive and deductive reasoning however with a view to a thorough appreciation of the question we must first of all put clearly before the reader the antithesis of the dualistic and the monistic theories the prevailing conception of the psychic activity which we contest considers soul and body to be two distinct entities these two entities can exist independently of each other there is no intrinsic necessity for their union the organized body is a mortal material nature chemically composed of living protoplasm and its compounds plasma products the soul on the other hand is an immortal immaterial being a spiritual agent whose mysterious activity is entirely incomprehensible to us this trivial conception is as such a spiritualistic and its contradictory is in a certain sense materialistic it is at the same time supernatural and transcendental 
since it affirms the existence of forces which can exist and operate without a material basis it rests on the assumption that outside of and beyond nature there is a spiritual immaterial world of which we have no experience and of which we can learn nothing by natural means this hypothetical spirit world which is supposed to be entirely independent of the material universe and on the assumption of which the whole artificial structure of the dualistic system is based is purely a product of poetic imagination the same must be said of the parallel belief in the immortality of the soul the scientific impossibility of which we must prove more fully later on chapter eleven if the beliefs which prevail in these credulous circles had a sound foundation the phenomena they relate to could not be subject to the law of substance moreover this single exception to the highest law of the cosmos must have appeared very late in the history of the organic world since it only concerns the soul of man and of the higher animals the dogma of free will another essential element of the dualistic psychology is similarly irreconcilable with the universal law of substance our own naturalistic conception of the psychic activity sees in it a group of vital phenomena which are dependent on a definite material substratum like all other phenomena we shall give it to this material basis of all psychic activity without which it is inconceivable the provisional name of psychoplasm and for this good reason that chemical analysis proves it to be a body of the group we call protoplasmic bodies the albuminoid carbon combinations which are at the root of all vital processes in the higher animals which have a nervous system and sense organs neuroplasm the nerve material has been differentiated out of psychoplasm our conception is in this sense materialistic it is at the same time empirical and naturalistic for our scientific experience has never yet taught us the existence of forces that can dispense with a material substratum or of a spiritual world over and above the realm of nature like all other natural phenomena the psychic processes are subject to the supreme or ruling law of substance not even in this province is there a single exception to this highest cosmological law compare chapter twelve the phenomena of the lowly psychic life of the unicellular protist and the plant and of the lowest animal forms their irritability their reflex movements their sensitiveness and instinct of self-preservation are directly determined by physiological action in the protoplasm of their cells that is by physical and chemical changes which are partly due to heredity and partly to adaptation and we must say just the same of the higher psychic activity of the higher animals and man of the formation of ideas and concepts of the marvellous phenomena of reason and consciousness for the latter have been phylogenetically evolved from the former and it is merely a higher degree of integration or centralization of association or combination of functions which were formerly isolated that has elevated them in this manner the first task of every science is the clear definition of the object it has to investigate 
in no science however is this preliminary task so difficult as in psychology and this circumstance is the more remarkable since logic the science of defining is itself a part of psychology when we compare all that has been said by the most distinguished philosophers and scientists of all ages on the fundamental idea of psychology we find ourselves in a perfect chaos of contradictory notions what really is the soul what is its relation to the mind what is the inner meaning of consciousness what is the difference between sensation and sentiment what is instinct what is the meaning of free will what is presentation what is the difference between intellect and reason what is the true nature of emotion what is the relation between all these psychic phenomena and the body the answers to these and many other cognate questions are infinitely varied not only are the views of the most eminent thinkers on these questions widely divergent but even the same scientific authority has often completely changed his views in the course of his psychological development indeed this psychological metamorphosis of so many thinkers has contributed not a little to the colossal confusion of ideas which prevails in psychology more than in any other branch of knowledge the most interesting example of such an entire change of objective and subjective psychological opinions is found in the case of the most influential leader of german philosopher immanuel kant the young severely critical kant came to the conclusion that the three great buttresses of mysticism god freedom and immortality were untenable in the light of pure reason the older dogmatic kant found that these three great hallucinations were postulates of practical reason and were as such indispensable the more the distinguished modern school of neo-kantians urges a return to kant as the only possible salvation from the frightful jumble of modern metaphysics the more clearly do we perceive the undeniable and fatal contradiction between the fundamental opinions of the young and the older kant we shall return to this point later on other interesting examples of this change of views are found in two of the most famous living scientists r virchow and e du voiremont the metamorphoses of their fundamental views on psychology cannot be overlooked as both these berlin biologists have played a most important part at germany's greatest university for more than forty years and have therefore directly and indirectly had a most profound influence on the modern mind rudolf virchow the eminent founder of cellular pathology was a pure monist in the best days of his scientific activity about the middle of the century he passed at that time as one of the most distinguished representatives of the newly awakened materialism which appeared in eighteen hundred and fifty five especially through two famous works almost contemporaneous in appearance ludwig buchner's matter and force and karl vogt's superstition and science virchow published his general biological views on the vital processes in man which he takes to be purely mechanical natural phenomena in a series of distinguished papers in the first volumes of the archive für pathologische anatomie which he founded the most important of these articles and the one in which he most clearly expresses his monistic views of that period is that on the tendencies towards unity in scientific medicine 
1849. It was certainly not without careful thought and a conviction of its philosophic view that Virchow put this medical confession of faith at the head of his collected essays on scientific medicine in 1856. He defended in it clearly and definitely the fundamental principles of monism, which I am presenting here with a view to the solution of the world problem. He vindicated the exclusive title of empirical science, of which the only reliable sources are sense and brain activity. He vigorously attacked anthropological dualism, the alleged revelation, and the transcendental philosophy with their two methods, faith and anthropomorphism. Above all, he emphasized the monistic character of anthropology, the inseparable connection of spirit and body, of force and matter. I am convinced, he exclaims, at the end of his preface, that I shall never find myself compelled to deny the thesis of the unity of human nature. Unhappily, this conviction proved to be a grave error. Twenty-eight years afterwards, Virchow represented the diametrically opposite view. It is to be found in the famous speech on the liberty of science in modern states which he delivered at the scientific congress at munich in eighteen hundred and seventy seven and which contains attacks that i have repelled in my free science and free teaching eighteen hundred and seventy eight in emile du boisremont we find similar contradictions with regard to the most important and fundamental theses of philosophy the more completely and distinguished orator of the berlin academy had defended the main principles of the monistic philosophy the more he had contributed to the refutation of vitalism and the transcendental view of life so much the louder was the triumphant cry of our opponents when in eighteen hundred and seventy two in his famous ignorabimus speech he spoke of the consciousness of an insoluble problem and opposed it to the other functions of the brain as a supernatural phenomenon i return to the point in the tenth chapter the peculiar character of many of the psychic phenomena especially of consciousness necessitates certain modifications of our ordinary scientific methods we have for instance to associate with the customary objective external observation the introspective method the subjective internal observation which scrutinizes our own personality in the mirror of consciousness the majority of psychologists have started from this certainty of the ego cogito ergo sum as descartes said i think therefore i am let us first cast a glance at this way of inquiry and then deal with the second complementary method by far the greater part of the theories of the soul which have been put forward during the last two thousand years or more are based on introspective inquiry that is on self-observation and on the conclusions which we draw from the association and criticism of these subjective experiences introspection is the only possible method of inquiry for an important section of psychology especially for the study of consciousness hence this cerebral function occupies a special position and has been a more prolific source of philosophic error than any of the others it is however most unsatisfactory and it leads to entirely false or incomplete notions to take the self-observation of the mind to be the chief or especially to be the only source of mental science as has happened in the case of many and distinguished philosophers 
a great number of the principal psychic phenomena particularly the activity of the senses and speech can only be studied in the same way as every other vital function of the organism that is firstly by a thorough anatomical study of their organs and secondly by an exact physiological analysis of the functions which depend on them in order however to complete this external study of the mental life and to supplement the results of internal observation one needs a thorough knowledge of human anatomy histology ontogeny and physiology most of our so-called psychologists have little or no knowledge of these indispensable foundations of anthropology they are therefore incompetent to pronounce on the character even of their own soul it must be remembered too that the distinguished personality of one of these psychologists usually offers a specimen of an educated mind of the highest civilized races it is the last link of a long ancestral chain and the innumerable older and inferior links are indispensable for its proper understanding hence it is that most of the psychological literature of the day is so much waste paper the introspective method is certainly extremely valuable and indispensable still it needs the constant cooperation and assistance of the other methods end of chapter 6 part 1 read for you by chiquito crasto birmingham alabama